0: where we look at mysteries from the twin perspectives of faith and reason. In this episode, we're talking about the black magic harem conspiracy theory against Pharaoh Ramesses III. I'm Dom Bettinelli, and joining me today is Jimmy Aiken. Hi, Jimmy. Howdy, Dom. 3,175 years ago, a conspiracy was launched in the royal court of the most powerful nation on earth. The target was the most powerful man on earth, the king, whose subjects regarded him as a living god. But his own wives and court officials were plotting his murder. They were using black magic against him, and he died. But the conspirators were caught and put on trial. Who were they? Why were they trying to kill the pharaoh of Egypt? And what dark arts did they use? That's what we'll be talking about on this episode of Jimmy Aiken's Mysterious World. (laughs) So for people who are not familiar with that noise,
1: where does it come from?
0: So that that is the famous opening from a TV series that was on for like 20 years, almost as long as it's been since this occurred, uh, but uh, called Law and Order. And it famously began every episode as they... They began their their case of the week, their mystery. (laughs) And we're definitely dealing with court records in this instance. That's that's for sure. Uh, So, Jimmy, are you looking forward to today's episode? Oh, I sure am. It's got all kinds of exciting stuff. Murder,
1: politics, black magic, betrayal, ancient Egypt, courtroom
0: drama and a surprising twist at one point. So lots of good stuff. So I understand we need to start with a couple of disclaimers. What do we need to let people know? First, since today's mystery
1: is 3,200 years old, it involves a good bit of scholarly reconstruction, and that applies, for example, to things like names— Ancient Egypt didn't have written vowels, and so scholars have had to reconstruct the language from the consonants that the Egyptians wrote. This means we're not sure how many words, including names, were pronounced. As a result, if you find different spellings, or you will find different spellings and pronunciations for the names in different sources if you do further study on this mystery, which I hope you will. Just be aware, the names we're using today are not the only way these names get spelled and pronounced. Second, it's not just the names that have been reconstructed. Our historical records for this period are fragmentary enough that scholars have had to take educated guesses about certain things, like how this member of the royal family is related to that member of the royal family. We've actually learned a lot more about that in recent years because of DNA studies because we've got a lot of the mummies, and now that we can DNA test them, just in the last 10 years or so, we've been able to clear up, oh, this person really was the son of this other person or whatever. That means if you look at older resources, you're going to find scholars making other guesses that have, you know, we've subsequently gotten more DNA evidence about who Ramesses III's children were, And there are other scholars who still have, you know, the DNA hasn't settled everything. So scholars have to make educated guesses about these things to keep things simple and to keep this episode at a somewhat manageable length. I'm going to I'm not going to be putting in all the scholarly qualifiers I would if I were writing an academic paper that will let us explore the mystery in a straightforward way without interrupting it constantly to qualify stuff. Uh, But it also means that if you do further reading, you'll encounter authors who are reconstructing things a little bit differently. That's okay. Everyone agrees on the basic shape of what happened in this mystery, even if they vary on some of the details. So how do we know about this mystery? What what are our sources for it? We have a lot of sources that pertain to Egyptian history and to the reign of Ramesses III, but for the Harim murder conspiracy itself, we have one major source. Originally, it appears to have been a single big papyrus scroll, but a greedy antiquities thief cut it up into parts so that he could sell them to multiple people and make more money. The largest part of it is called the Judicial Papyrus of Turin, because it's housed in a museum in Turin, Italy, the same city where they have the Shroud of Turin. Other parts of the scroll are known as Papyrus Rollin, Papyrus Lee, Papyrus, Papyrus Varzi, and Papyrus Rifo. Uh, and it actually appears that there are other parts that have been lost. In fact, Papyrus Riffaut, or what's called that, is actually a handwritten copy. It's not actually a papyrus. It's a handwritten copy of a lost part of the papyrus that was made by a 19th century uh, French explorer named J.J. Riffaut, who didn't know the Egyptian alphabet. Mm. <laughs> and so it's, uh, it's kind of messy. Basically, the original papyrus was a record of legal proceedings against the conspirators including information about the judicial inquiry and the uh, sentences that were handed
0: down. Let's set the stage by talking about the period in Egyptian history when the conspiracy took place. What was going on?
1: Egyptologists refer to the period we're talking about as the New Kingdom. At this time, Egypt was at the height of its imperial power, and it was able to effectively project military force well beyond its border. This period lasted for about 500 years from around 1500 BC to around 1000 BC. It's the period in which the biblical exodus took place, but we're after the time of the exodus. The exodus took place in either the 18th or 19th dynasties, but the conspiracy we're talking about took place in the 20th dynasty, dynasty, which is the last of the New Kingdom period. We'll be looking specifically at the events of 1155 BC, which corresponds to the time period of the Book of Judges in the Bible, and seems to be the period when Gideon, the guy with the fleece, was judging Israel. And who was Ramesses III? Well, the first thing to know about him is he's not Ramesses the Great. Ramesses the Great is often proposed as the pharaoh of the Exodus, but he belonged to the previous 19th dynasty, so he's a dynasty earlier than our man Ramesses III. Ramesses the Great was Ramesses II, but Ramesses II was so great that he was kind of used as a model by later pharaohs as, oh, I want to be like that guy. And Ramesses III likely took his throne name, Ramesses, which means in Egyptian, Ra is born. So the sun god is born. likely took his name to hark back to the golden age of Ramesses the Great. Uh, He wanted his own reign to be like a new golden
0: age. And was it a new golden age? Kind of, at least for a while. Ramesses
1: III is regarded as the last great pharaoh in the New Kingdom period. After him, things start to go downhill pretty quickly. In fact, his dynasty and the New Kingdom itself only lasted for about another 80 years uh, after his murder. Ramesses reigned for 32 years, which is quite a long reign. It was so long that at the 30-year mark, he underwent the customary Hebsed Festival. This was a ritual that pharaohs would do every so often, beginning on their 30th anniversary of their reign, and its purpose was to supernaturally rejuvenate the king so that he would be fit to keep on ruling. In the Heb Sed Festival, the king would do things like run a race course and wrestle with younger men, and thus he'd be mystically rejuvenated so he could still be a strong, vigorous pharaoh. Early on in his reign, Ramesses had shown himself to have a lot of military ability. In Egypt, the pharaoh, and this is one of the reasons for the Sed Festival, in Egypt, the pharaoh was expected to personally, physically lead the army into battle. And Ramesses distinguished himself by a number of key military victories. In year five of his reign, he defeated a bunch of invaders from Libya. Libya is to the west of Egypt on the northern coast of Africa, so the Libyans had to cross the western desert to get to the Nile, and Ramesses defeated their invasion in the western Nile Delta, which is the marshy area where the Nile fans out as it approaches the Mediterranean Sea. In year eight of his reign, Ramesses repelled another invasion, this time by a mysterious group known as the Sea Peoples. And scholars aren't exactly sure who the Sea Peoples were. We read about them from a bunch of places, but we're not as confident as we'd like to be about exactly who they were. What we know is that they would come across the Mediterranean Sea and invade Egypt and other places. In year eight, the Sea People started coming up through the Nile Delta and Ramesses defeated them. This is significant because the Egyptians had a reputation of being terrible sailors. They were not like the Greeks. The Greeks were really good sailors. Egyptians were terrible sailors because they were spoiled by the Nile River. It flows one way. You want to go with the flow. You just go with the flow. You want to go the other way. You put up sails. So very primitive sailing skills. But they set up defensive lines along the banks of the river and sent volley after volley of arrows into the sea people. They then used grappling hooks so primitive tractor beams, to <laughs> drag the sea people's ships to the shore, at which point they slaughtered them in hand-to-hand combat. Afterwards, Ramesses settled some of the sea peoples in fortified towns in Palestine. And some scholars think these may have been in the territory of the biblical Philistines. So the sea peoples are often linked to the biblical Philistines, and Ramesses may have made a contribution to biblical history. Remember, this is the period of the judges when the Israelites were in a lot of conflict with the Philistines. And then a few years later, in year 11 of his reign, the Libyans came back across the desert again, and he had to redefeat them all over again in the Nile Delta.
0: Oh, they never learned. One of the, <laughs> one of the ways that the ancient rulers distinguished themselves was with great building projects. Did Ramesses III build anything notable? Yeah. One of the first things, like any pharaoh
1: that he started work on, was his own tomb, By this point in Egyptian history, pharaohs had learned you didn't want to be buried in a pyramid because they were giant beacons screaming for tomb robbers to come and rob them. (laughs) So pyramid burial, you know, it was so old kingdom. So the new kingdom pharaohs would be buried in the Valley of the Kings, which was a secluded spot with limited access that was easier to guard and control. Ramesses' tomb is KV-11 or King's Valley Tomb 11, And it's quite impressive. It's often called the Harper's Tomb, because on one of the walls, there is a painting of two blind harpers, guys playing harps. In Egypt, if you were blind, there weren't a lot of jobs open to you. So blind people often went into music. Ramesses apparently liked music because you don't normally have harpers on the wall of a pharaoh's tomb. But he wanted them there. And uh, they could even be two actual harpers that he knew and who he wanted to be with him in the afterlife. You know, he liked their playing so much, he wanted them jamming on their harps for him for all eternity. Also, near the King's Valley is a place called Medinet Habu, where Ramesses built his mortuary temple. A mortuary temple is a place where rituals were performed for pharaohs after their deaths. During their lives, the pharaohs would build and create an endowment for these mortuary temples so that there would be priests who would be funded to keep performing rituals in the king's honor. Remember, you know, the Pharaoh was supposed to be a god even in life, and he didn't stop being one once he died. In fact, once he died, he would be referred to in official documents as the great god so-and-so. The rituals performed in his honor were meant to be continued forever. In fact, what we call a mortuary temple, the Egyptians had a different name for. They called them mansions of millions of years, which gives you an idea of how long they expected them to be used for. Ramesses Third's mortuary temple is patterned after the one built by Ramesses the Great, so it's another indication of how he was trying to pattern his reign after his namesakes. And uh, it's also one of the biggest ever
0: built. It's got dimensions of about 700 feet by about 1,000 feet. So far, it sounds like Ramesses' reign was going really well. Were there signs of trouble? Yeah.
1: um, For example, even though his mortuary temple is patterned after Ramesses II, it's also unusual in part of its design. Unlike any other mortuary temple in this part of Egypt, it's built to incorporate large defensive fortifications. And that suggests some kind of military instability. Otherwise, why would you need these fortifications on this temple? Also, we know that late in his reign, Ramesses had trouble providing food for his people. The price of grain skyrocketed and continued to go up in the reigns of his successors. Scholars aren't sure why, but they think that the grain harvest may have been harmed by a period of global cooling caused by a volcanic uh, eruption in Iceland. In that case, the Egyptians would not have known why their crops were failing. They would just know the weather was bad and they were having poor crop yields. The problem got so bad that Ramesses wasn't able to deliver grain supplies to the royal tomb builders at the Valley of the Kings on some occasions. And this led to the first known instance of a strike in recorded history. The tomb builders were skilled craftsmen. They were not unskilled slaves. And at one point, you know, they're supposed to get a supply of grain every month. And at one point, it's 18 days overdue, you know, more than half a month overdue. And they decided they'd had enough. They put down their tools and commenced to hold a sit down strike. They demanded that either the pharaoh or his vizier come and hear their grievances or they wouldn't go back to work. The authorities then heard them out and spoke with them, and they went back to work the next day. But when the problem persisted, they ended up holding several more strikes. So these problems were occurring late in Ramesses' reign. Combined with his advancing age, he was now 62, which was quite elderly for a ruler. You know, These problems may have contributed to the conspiracy that now started to form in his own family. Uh, the family may have begun to think that he had become an ineffective ruler, who needed to be replaced, that he hadn't been sufficiently rejuvenated by his Heb Sed Festival, and so there was jockeying to replace him. Let's meet the family. What can you tell us about them? Ramesses' father, who's dead by this point, his name was Setnachta, and he was the founder of the 20th dynasty. He was its first king. Setnachta's wife and Ramesses' mother was a woman named Ty Marinesa, Ramesses himself had three wives that we know about, plus a bunch of concubines. He had at least 20 sons, many of whom he named after the sons of Ramesses II. So it's like, I want to be like that guy so much, I'm naming my own kids after his kids. For example, he named his firstborn Hepshef after the firstborn of Ramesses the Great. And in fact, Amen, the original Hepshef died before his father did. So if Ramesses the Great was the pharaoh of the Exodus, then the original Amenher Hepshef may have been the firstborn prince mentioned as dying in Exodus. Ramesses III's chief wife or great wife was named Tisis Ta-Hemjert. An interesting fact about Isis ta Hemgert is she may not have been an Egyptian. Her mother's name, Hemjert, is Syrian rather than Egyptian. We know about one of her children, Ramesses Sixth, but he won't get on the throne until about 10 years after Ramesses III's death. So there are a few intervening kings in there. Ramesses' next wife was known as Titi, and she also may have been a great wife, at least for some time. She appears to have been Ramesses' sister, which was common in ancient Egyptian royalty. In fact, it's frequently believed by Egyptologists that in order to become pharaoh, you needed to marry a woman with royal blood. You know, you marry the right woman, you become the pharaoh. And since Ramesses' father, Setnachta, founded the dynasty, Ramesses may have needed to marry his own sister in order to marry a woman with royal blood. Taiti, had several children, but the one we need to focus on is Amenherepshef. He, as Ramesses' eldest son, was his appointed successor, and he had been groomed to, to take the throne for a long time. For example, in year 22, 10 years before Ramesses' death, Amenherepshef was made commander-in-chief of the army. So it's like we're getting this guy ready to be a strong, vigorous pharaoh with military prowess. Ramesses' third wife was named Tia, not to be confused with Titi. We know she had a son called Pentaweret, and he was meant to be the chief beneficiary of the conspiracy. His mother Tia wanted her son Pentaweret to be the next pharaoh, not Titi's son Amenherhepshef. And Tia was willing to bring her husband's death about in order to get her son on the throne. That's something that happens periodically in royal houses. For example, in the Roman Empire, uh, the emperor Claudius's last wife, Agrippina the Younger, was willing to poison Claudius in order to get her son Nero on the throne. And that, of course, also meant doing away with Claudius' natural-born son, Britannicus, so that he couldn't be a threat to Nero's rule. So the plan here was somewhat similar. Basically, Tia wants to kill Ramesses, and then presumably also the designated heir, Amenher Hepshef, so her son, Pentaweret can get on the throne, just like Agrippina poisons Claudius to, and kills Britannicus to benefit Nero. How did Tia go about her plan? The first thing she needed to do was get allies. And that apparently started with the other women of the harem. Uh, we don't know the names of any of them because the judicial Pyrus of Turin only mentions her by name. But it seems that her allies did not include either of the other known full wives, Isis and Titi, And you wouldn't expect them to be included because neither of their sons were supposed to benefit. In fact, you know, Titi's son, Amenher Hepshef, would have lost the throne, so there's no way Tia's going to be telling his mom about the plan. In any event, both of the other wives, the other two wives, survived and were active in the royal court in later years, and that would have been very unlikely if they had known about the conspiracy. We do know that Tia did get allies including at least two of the concubines in the harem, uh, We know that one concubine helped Tia by appealing to her brother for help in the conspiracy, and we know that there were multiple concubines who were in on the plot because the judicial papyrus mentions Tia conspiring with the women of the harem, indicating more than one woman besides Tia was involved. Other people around Tia also knew about the plot. One of them, as you'd expect, was her son Pintaweret, uh, who was expected to take the throne, and there were other people near her who heard the women in the harem discussing the plans and didn't report them. That includes a guy named Henu who was a butler, also got a guy named Amin Ha, a deputy of the harem and a guy named Para who is a scribe of the harem and these may have been among the very first people to know about the plot you know tia her son the women and the harem officials who were there to overhear them as they first started talking about the plan
0: you mentioned that one of these people was a butler today butlers are servants who are very high up in in the household They usually supervise the other servants, especially the male servants. Is that what
1: butlers were in ancient uh, Egypt? Not exactly. Uh, They were very important servants, but they had different duties than modern butlers. In her book, The Harem
0: Conspiracy, Susan Redford explains, Commonly translated butler or cup bearer, this person's basic task was to serve the king his food and wine. Because of their physical closeness to the throne, butlers sometimes became personal advisors to the king where they could and often did exercise great influence. So this is the same kind of of official that Joseph met when he was in
1: prison in Genesis 40. On that occasion, the pharaoh's butler or cupbearer, depending on which Bible translation you're reading, it'll be translated either way, that butler or cupbearer had fallen out of favor and was put in prison. But he had a dream which Joseph interpreted as meaning he would be restored to his position and that's what happened. Same position in this case. There are several butlers or cupbearers in this story who served either in the harem or for other people involved in the royal court.
0: So far, we've talked about the people who started and first heard about the conspiracy, but harems were secluded and the women couldn't do much for themselves. So, wouldn't Tia need someone to take action on her behalf? This was one of the key challenges that the coup plotters had to deal with. As women of the
1: harem, access to them was severely restricted and they were constantly guarded, just like Pharaoh was, you know, for their own protection. Uh, When Tia, what Tia had to do was recruit someone who did have access to the harem, but who could also serve as a go-between with other people. And the man she found is referred to as, in the judicial papyrus as Pebekamen, and he was the chief of the chamber, or in some translations, the chief of the pantry. Basically, that meant he was in charge of keeping the food inventory in the kitchen. So he had a low position in the royal household, and he would have been interested in rising in status. Why do you say he's referred to as Pebekamen? Wasn't that his name? Actually, no. uh, For magical reasons that we'll get into, The judicial papyrus uses substitute names for almost everyone it mentions. Pebekahman means that blind servant, a signal of how the chief of the pantry was so morally blind that he could be duped by Queen Tia. His real name was probably Pabakamana, which means the servant of Amun. That's Amun, the hidden god. Uh, but in the judicial document, rather than call him the servant of Amun, they call him that blind servant. This means that the names of the conspirators that are given in the judicial papyrus are probably close to their real names, but for the magical reasons we'll discuss, they're not their real names. What was Peba Kamen's role in the plot? Basically, he was Tia's chief ally and the main coordinator of the coup he's listed at, as the first person in the very first group to be prosecuted. He's accused of conspiring with Tia and the women of the harem, and the other people in the prosecution list are charged with conspiring with him, with Pebe Kamen. So he was the main go-between, and he seems to have recruited and organized the others. What was the overall plan? It's hard to reconstruct an exact chronology of what was supposed to happen and in what order, but the plan had five basic elements. Uh, first, they needed to network with people that they need to pull off the coup. Second, they'd need to get past Ramesses III's protections, both physical and magical. Third, they'd need to kill the king himself, and either at the same time or later, they'd also need to kill Prince Amenher Hepshef. Fourth, they need to seize the palace. And fifth, they were going to start a popular uprising outside the palace to consolidate their rule. How did they network with the people they'd need to pull off the coup? It appears that a lot of this activity was conducted through uh, Pepe Kamen. He's specifically named in the judicial document as passing
0: messages for them. The document says, he made common cause with them and began bringing out their words to their mothers and their brothers who were there, saying, stir up the people, incite enemies to hostility against their lord. Pebekamen also recruited
1: at least three other guys in the palace to help with inciting the planned insurrection. And these were a guy named, uh, for example, a butler named, Med, named Mesed Sure, also the superintendent of the royal harem named Panoch and a scribe of the harem named Pendua of course as plans were being made other people in the harem heard about them uh, remember you know there's guards all over the place and there were actually six security guards at the harem who overheard all the plans being discussed and did not report them and the six security guards had wives who sided with their husbands and were sympathizers to the plot in addition to the six guards, there were at least four other officials. By the way, take note of how many people this is This is spreading to. <laughs> Besides the six guards, there were also four other officials Pepe Common spoke with and who, or who otherwise heard him discussing the plans and didn't report them. There was a butler named Warren, Pepe Common's own assistant, Esha said, a butler and scribe of the White House, which was not where the king lived in ancient Israel, in ancient Egypt, the White House was the treasury. So, the treasury department rather than the president's residence. His name was Peluka, And there was a former butler from Libya named Yanini. Um, one of the things you find uh, when you look at the names in Ramesses Third royal court is we got lots of foreigners here including like you remember he defeated the Libyans twice, but he's got one working as a butler in his own house. And so there were a lot of foreigners here, and some have speculated that may have contributed to the natives getting restless, or maybe the foreigners weren't so interested in being loyal to this king. In any event, there were also people outside the palace who were in on the plot, One of them was Para, son of Ruma, who was the superintendent of the White House or the Treasury. Another guy was Benemwesa, who was the captain of the Archers of Nubia. And he was the guy whose sister was one of the concubines. And she had sent him a letter in which she said,
0: Incite the people to hostility, and come thou to begin hostility against thy lord. So there was a lot of networking inside and outside of the palace going on. Do we know of other people who were involved in the plot? Undoubtedly, there were more people, but we
1: don't know most of their names. Some of the the ones on the outside were likely never caught. One person whose name we do know was the overseer of the king's cattle, a man named Penhyben. The documents we have accuse him of doing two things— First, he's accused of altering the branding irons that were used on the king's cattle. So he changed the brands on the cattle and that let him siphon off and embezzle some of Ramesses' cows. It's been suggested that this was to raise money to use for bribes to get people to support the plot. But it's also been suggested that maybe this was an unrelated offense just used to blacken his name in the court documents. The second thing he's accused of is getting a pass from one of the palace officials to let him enter the palace, because you couldn't just go in there. You needed authorization. The cover story that he used was that he's actually coming into the palace to consult a divine oracle that was there at the palace. But
0: in actuality, he reached the side of the harem of that other great expansive place, and he began to use the inscribed waxen figures in order that they may be taken inside by the inspector, Ajri Ram for staving off one gang of men and spellbinding the others so that a few messages could be taken in and others brought out. We'll
1: hear more about this type of magical waxen figurine in a bit, but for the moment, notice that Panheubin was functioning as part of the communications network to smuggle messages in and out of the palace. And then, of course, he also may have been part of the economic support network for the conspiracy by siphoning off some of the cattle he was in charge of. Interestingly, his name does not appear in the prosecution lists that we have. And it's been suggested that Penhuben may have died during the coup and did not live to see the trial. Either that, or maybe he escaped capture and fled Egyptian society and got away, either dying in the desert or building a new life for himself somewhere.
0: Once the plotters had their network in place, they needed to get past Ramses III's protections in order to attack him. How'd they plan to do that? They also recruited a group
1: of people to help with that. One of them was a man named who who is the commander of the army, and Obviously, the commander of the army would be a valuable guy for the conspirators to have on their side. There was also a group of men who had magical abilities. Two of them were scribes of the House of Sacred Writings named Mesui and Shedmesser. One was Parakamenef, who was a magician, and then there was a man named Iroi, who was the overseer of the priests of the lion-headed goddess Sekhmet, who is a goddess both of war and of healing. So you'd see why they'd want her chief priest on your side. Also, there was a man named Neb Zephy, who was later prosecuted with this group of people, but it's unclear why, because he was only a butler. Maybe he was a butler for one of the other men in the group.
0: Why did the conspirators think it was important to use magic against Ramses III? Susan Redford explains The document twice accuses these men, in particular, of overturning the protections. This is said in connection with the overturning of the royal bark, an implicit allusion to an attack on the king. The Egyptians believed that the kingship was in the safe custody of the gods, the king being the one person on whom the economy and safety of the country depended, especially benefited by the magical protection afforded by the deities. Magical books housed in temple libraries were transcribed for the king's good, and rituals performed daily by priests and temples throughout the land ensured the king's safety. It was a necessary step for the conspirators to remove these protections in order to make the king vulnerable to attack. Iroy, along with his colleague Parakamenef, the magician, had the ability to perform such sorcery aided by two high-ranking scribes, Masui and Shedmeser, who were able to appropriate the necessary books containing the secret spells and rituals to carry out their nefarious deeds.
1: So basically, it's like Pharaoh has this magical force field provided by the gods, and, you know, you need to take down his force field in order to get at him. And we know some of the details about how they carried out their magical plans. Part of the document we have discusses an unnamed individual
0: who supplied part of the magical apparatus for the attack. He began to prepare magical texts for the purpose of confusing and disturbing and to make waxen figures of some gods and some potions for disabling the limbs of people they were put into the hands of pebekamen and the other great criminals saying take them inside and they took them inside now when he effected an entry the evil things he was to do were done
1: notice the kind of things we have here we've got magical texts for so these are like written spells for confusing and disturbing people and then we have these waxen figures of the gods and potions that were meant to disable or enfeeble the limbs of the king's guards. The potions, if they were given to the guards to drink, may have even been effective. And in fact, we have a record of one guy who says, yeah, my hand was enfeebled. Thus far, we, and he may mean I myself, not just my hand, but like he drank something they gave him to drink and then he got weak and maybe passed out. Thus far, we've looked at the things that are fairly well established, about the conspiracy, but now we're up to the moment where the plotters are ready to spring into action. And from here, things are less clear, making it a good point to talk about the theories about the conspiracy.
0: So what are the theories about the Harem
1: conspiracy? They revolve around several questions. What exactly the conspirators were planning to do, why they wanted to do these things in the first place, how successful they were, and what happened to them afterwards. And also, there's a bonus question that we haven't talked about yet, but which has to do with a surprising twist in the story.
0: And we'll get to those and uh, the faith and reason perspectives on this mystery in a second. But first, I want to take a moment to thank our patrons who make this show possible, including this time Eric W., Marianne K., Mike and Angie G., Gregory L., and Charles J., Their generous donations at sqpn.com slash give make it possible for us to continue Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World and all the shows at StarQuest. You can join them by visiting sqpn.com slash give. So, Jimmy, what can we say about the Black Magic harem conspiracy from the faith perspective?
1: The first thing to look at is the fact that it involves a political revolution, an attempt to overthrow a given regime and replace it with Another. While the church has been very reluctant to endorse this sort of thing, especially in recent times, it does acknowledge that there are circumstances where this is legitimate. Various authors, including St. Thomas Aquinas, have taught that tyrannicide, the killing of a tyrant, can be legitimate in some circumstances. Similarly, paragraph 2243 of the Catechism of the Catholic
0: Church says, Armed resistance to oppression by political authority is not legitimate, unless all the following conditions are met. 1. There is certain grave and prolonged violation of fundamental rights. 2. All other means of redress have been exhausted. 3. Such resistance will not provoke worse disorders. 4. There is well-founded hope of success. And 5. It is impossible reasonably to foresee any better solution. So if you're a
1: Christian and you get out of the TARDIS and are wondering whether you can participate in the harem conspiracy, you need to make sure that all five of those conditions were met. But another aspect of the case is that it involves black magic.
0: Yeah. In episode 79, we talked about the definition of magic and you said it was basically a shady, unapproved ritual. How does that apply in this case?
1: A lot of what the ancient Egyptians did would be considered magic by most Christians historically. After all, the ceremonies of the Egyptian religion were not approved for use by Christians, and for a Christian to use them would definitely be shady and would fit the definition of magic. Uh, However, what the coup plotters did would have been considered magic even by other ancient Egyptians. One thing you are not allowed to do with rituals is overthrow the king trying to knock over Pharaoh by ritual means would have been considered black magic by the Egyptians and harmful rituals directed against members of one's own community were considered black magic and thus illegal in all ancient cultures. Nobody wanted like, you know, ritual murder happening. So casting spells to kill somebody is always black magic in every culture. Now, If you were uh, a time-traveling Christian, you know, you get out of the TARDIS and you concluded that the conditions for armed resistance to this government authority did apply, despite the doctor telling you not to use guns, (laughs) you still could not participate in the black magic parts of the conspiracy. Paragraph 2117
0: of the Catechism says, All practices of magic or sorcery by which one attempts to tame occult powers so as to place them at one's service and have a supernatural power over others, even if this were for the sake of restoring their health, are gravely contrary to the virtue of religion. These practices are even more to be condemned when accompanied by the intention of harming someone, or when they have recourse to the intervention of demons. And if the Egyptian gods
1: existed at all... Other than Sutek, who was an Assyrian in Doctor Who? Well, anyway, (laughs) if they existed at all, they would be demons. So, you know, don't go invoking them. Right. A final aspect of this from the faith perspective concerns the fact that some of the coup plotters committed suicide after they were caught, uh, which we'll discuss in the reason section. If you were a time-traveling Christian who participated in the conspiracy, but not the black magic parts, you would still not be able to commit suicide when
0: you get caught. Paragraph 2281 of the Catechism says, Suicide contradicts the natural inclination of the human being to preserve and perpetuate his life. It is gravely contrary to the just love of self. It likewise offends love of neighbor because it unjustly breaks the ties of solidarity with family, nation, and other human societies to which we continue to have obligations. Suicide is contrary to love for the living God. So if you get caught, you need to take your punishment. Suicide is right out. All right. So what can we say about the Harim conspiracy from the reason perspective? The first thing we should say is that there,
1: a good bit of the mystery here is caused by the nature of the records we have. First, they're incomplete. Also, they're only top level summaries of the proceeding. They're not full court transcripts. And parts of them are missing. And we'd know more if we had the full original records. Second, the records contain deliberate distortions. One of the things that Egyptologists have discovered is that records were always written in a way to glorify Pharaoh. For example, when Pharaohs go to war, they never lose battles. Instead of retreating, they just win battles that are closer and closer (laughs) to home. So these records are going to do as much as possible to make Pharaoh and those who were loyal to him look good and to exonerate them from any wrongdoing. Also, as we mentioned, the names of the accused in the documents have been altered. Both of these kinds of distortion had magical or at least religious reasons. So tell us about this. What were they trying to do with these alterations? One of them was secure an afterlife for the good guys. Egyptians believed that after you die, you appear before the gods. And if you could convince them you were a good person, then you'd get an afterlife. But if you couldn't, they'd throw your heart to a crocodile-headed monster goddess named Amit, or the devourer of the dead, and she'd eat your heart and you'd be annihilated. So, by saying nice things about the good guys, even if they weren't strictly true, it would help them when they stood before the gods. This may be why the judicial papyrus begins with a set of instructions ostensibly given by Ramesses III To the investigators.
0: Uh, Listen to what it says. As for the words which the people have spoken, I know them not. Go ye and examine them. When they go out and they examine them, they shall cause to die by their own hand, those who should die, without my knowing it. They shall execute the punishment upon the others, likewise, without my knowing it. When you go, see to it that you give heed, and have a care, lest ye execute punishment upon them unjustly. Now I say to you in very truth, as for all that has been done and those who have done it, that all that they have done fall upon their own heads, while I am protected and defended forever, while I, while I am among the just kings who are before amun Re, king of gods, and before Osiris, ruler of eternity. So notice how Ramesses is excused at every turn in this. He
1: doesn't know whether the reports he's received about the coup are true. He's not going to investigate the charges himself. He's entrusting it to others to do that. He doesn't even want to know who the guilty are. They're to be punished without his knowledge. He's warned the judges not to punish anyone except the guilty. And the guilty are only having what they have done fall on their own heads. Their deeds are coming back on them. Ramesses isn't doing anything to them. Meanwhile, Ramesses will be protected and defended forever while he is among the just kings in the afterlife before the gods Amun-Re and Osiris. So, in all of this, Ramesses is Mr. Innocent. And these statements apparently have a magical function. Because Ramesses is depicted as speaking these instructions, but also envisioning himself being in the afterlife— scholars for a long time thought that he survived the initial attack and initial attack and lived long enough to give these instructions but that he was wounded enough that he could foresee his own death and so that would explain the weirdness of he's giving the instructions but he's also saying he's going to be among the gods as we'll see it turns out that's not true ramesses did not survive to give these instructions and that means they were composed after his death either through mediumship or through ritual reconstruction of what his will would have been. And that means the primary audience for this text is the gods who will be judging him after death. This is an attempt to magically help the dead king by exonerating him of any possible wrongdoing. What about changing the names of the accused? There was also a magical reason for this. One of the things that we need to understand about how Egyptians named worked is most of them are what scholars call theophoric, meaning they contain the name of a deity. They bear the name of a deity. You see the same thing in ancient Hebrew names. So Dr. Daniel Jackson, he's got a Hebrew name, Don E.L. It means God is my judge. Similarly, Michael means who is like God and Elijah or Eliyahu means my God is Yahweh you also see the authors of the Bible sometimes changing names that invoke gods they didn't like. For example, a King Saul had a son named Ishbaal, who for two years served as a rival king to David. Ishbaal means man of Baal, the Canaanite storm god Baal. And he's called by the name Ishbaal in First Chronicles. But, you know, many Israelites, including the authors of the Bible, didn't like Baal. And so in Second Samuel, he gets called Ish-bosheth, which means man of shame. Uh, the word Baal thus gets replaced with the similar-sounding word for shame. And that's like what the Egyptian document does with the names of the conspirators. Susan Redford
0: explains, This vilification of the criminals' names is to be expected since most Egyptian names were theophoric, usually proclaiming the bear to be a devout follower of one deity or another, that a convicted criminal, especially one of this magnitude, should have the protection of the deity's name was inappropriate. Consequently, some of their names were slightly modified so as to be rendered shameful, thus removing the god's patronage. Furthermore, it was an effective form of demnatio memorare to ensure that the real names of these criminals would not be remembered. So the the names of the criminals were changed
1: to disconnect them from their chosen gods, perhaps to protect the gods' honor, or perhaps to keep the gods from coming to their help in the afterlife, or perhaps to keep the gods from punishing those who executed them. Redford also mentions this as a form of damnatio memorariae, or condemnation of memory. We also see this happening at the tombs and monuments that they had during life, where their names have also been stricken off. So we, we have, you know, tombs, these guys, some of them were building for themselves, or monuments, because they were servants of Pharaoh, they get mentioned on monuments. Well, after the coup, their names got stricken off. Both of these attempts at damnatio memorariae could be attempts to hurt these people by denying them an afterlife, since the preservation of your name in the physical world was considered important for having an afterlife. The plotters thus get called by different names. I and mean, when we mentioned how the chief conspirator, Pebekamen means that blind servant, but his original name would have been servant of Amun. The overseer of the cattle, the guy who changed the brands and got the pass to go into the palace, Penheiben, means that evil high. The supervisor of the harem gets called Penok, which means serpent or snake. And my absolute favorite is the name given to the butler, Mesed His original name was almost certainly Mayaria, which would mean beloved of Rey or, you know, the sun god Ray. So Rey loves him. But he gets called Medsed which means Rey hates him. So <laughs> I love that. I mean, stay away from that guy. Rey hates him. <laughs> Even the king's own son who was involved in the plot, gets called by a new name. Uh, We know that his real name wasn't Pentaware. The document itself says he was called by another name, but it doesn't tell us what. Interestingly, Pentaware isn't a shameful name. Apparently, they didn't want to give the king's son a shameful name, but they also didn't want to call him by his real name for magical reasons, so they gave
0: him this neutral substitute name. Once their plans were made, including the magical preparations, what were the conspirators trying to do? How'd they expect this plan to go down? This is one of the hardest things to determine because the surviving documents aren't clear. Uh,
1: what's clear is that using both magic and other means, they would get past Pharaoh's guards and attack and kill the king. Who exactly was supposed to do this isn't clear. I mean, you'd kind of expect it to be some of the men involved in the conspiracy would, you know, get past the guards and kill Ramesses. But it's also been suggested it may have been the women of the harem who would kill Ramesses when they had access to him in an unguarded moment, you know, maybe one evening while they're entertaining him. Either at the same time or immediately afterwards, likely men who were in on the plot would kill the crown prince amun her so that he could not take the throne. At the same time, other members of the plot would seize control of the palace to protect the coup plotters from reprisals. Also involved in the plot, there was supposed to be this uprising outside the palace. Uh, Precisely how this was supposed to figure in isn't clear. It could have been that the uprising was to start outside first, giving the people in the palace a chance to strike. Or it could be that the uprising was to start at the same time as the coup, so that it would serve as a distraction, allowing the plotters to seize control of the government. And uh, once the surviving loyalists saw that the people on this were on the same side as the plotters, because they were rising up, they would cease their opposition to the new government. Why did they want to perform this coup in the first place? This is something we can't really know. And the different people involved probably had different motives. Uh, the surviving documents naturally portray the plotters as a bunch of ambitious traitors who attacked Ramesses despite all the wonderful things he'd done for them. Uh, in fact, there's one part of the document that goes on and on about how, oh, Pharaoh did this for you, and he did this, and he did this, and he did this, and, did this, and you betrayed him anyway. It's easy to see how Tia might have selfishly wanted her son Pentawera to inherit the throne instead of the designated crown prince. You know, We've seen that pattern at other points in history. Similarly, it's easy to see why your chief ally, Pepe may have wanted to participate out of selfish ambition. You know, he was chief of the pantry, a position so insignificant, it isn't even mentioned in key inscriptions in ancient Egypt. So he could have easily wanted to rise in office. But there's another side to the story. I mean, all of these people were taking their lives in their hands By agreeing to participate in this coup, because they would certainly die if they failed. They were taking enormous personal risk. And look at the huge number of the people involved. The surviving documents indicate that at least 32 people were executed or committed suicide after being convicted. And those are just the ones who got caught and survived to go to trial. We don't know how many either didn't get caught or died in the coup attempt. So 32 people who were connected with the king and who nevertheless wanted him dead. That is a
0: huge number. It's, it's often said that if you, want to, if you want to have a conspiracy, you should have no more than two or three people, any more than that, and you're definitely, it's going to get out. <laughs> That's yeah. a classic of, uh, of, of mystery uh, detective mystery literature. So how confident are we that all of these 32 people were really guilty?
1: This is something we can't know for sure. In the wake of an assassination attempt like this, it's certainly possible that people were convicted who were actually innocent. In fairness to the memory of those people, we should acknowledge 3,200 years later, some of these people may have been innocent. I think in particular of the w- six wives of the six guards who were accused of siding with their husbands. And I mean, they, how do how do we really know that? You know, but it's also possible that people who were guilty got away with it and weren't identified. In fact, it's certain that there were people who were killed that we don't have records of. For example, Tia and the other women of the harem who were involved were definitely killed. There is no way that they were allowed to live, but they're not mentioned in the surviving records, which are thus obviously incomplete. I mean, their deaths are not mentioned. So whatever the exact number of people was, it most definitely was a broad-based conspiracy. And
0: as Susan Redford writes, A beloved ruler is not assassinated by those close to him without good reason. What was it that prompted these people to take such desperate measures? On that subject, we can only speculate. We know that not everything had been going
1: well in Ramesses' reign. His mortuary temple has those bizarre defensive fortifications indicating some sort of Instability, where they feared armed attack from either foreign or domestic sources. He wasn't able to get the needed grain supplies leading to repeated strikes. He was now an old man and may have lost his ability to be an effective ruler for Egypt so that his underlings saw the kingdom sliding further and further into trouble. And despite the way the royal scribes were paid, expected, and required to glorify him, Ramesses also may have been a cruel, arrogant ruler. Uh, He was obviously trying to pattern his reign after the glorious Ramesses II, and he may have let this go to his head. He may have been personally cruel to his family and officials, leading his underlings to resent him and want to get rid of him and get out from under him. Whatever their motives were, there must have been compelling reasons why this many people in Ramesses' court were willing to take their lives into their own hands in an attempt to get rid of him. How successful were the plotters? They were partially successful, and this is something we've recently gotten additional clarity on. We've always known that they were unsuccessful when it came to replacing the crown prince with Tia's son Pentawera. They failed in that objective. Amenherhepshef was not killed, and he got control of the situation and succeeded his father as Ramesses the Fourth. This also means that the plotters were not able to ultimately establish control of the palace. Uh, They may or may not have had control for a time, but if they did, they lost it. And it means that the popular uprising outside of the palace failed. The conspirators had misjudged the willingness of those on the outside to support their cause, and whatever outside opposition there was eventually melted away. But the plotters were successful in one of their goals. And to appreciate this, I should note an interesting fact about Ramesses III. His mummy was the inspiration for the way the mummy is depicted in a lot of mummy movies, starting with Lon Chaney's 1940 movie, The Mummy's Hand. In that and in subsequent films, the mummy is depicted with an extra long scarf or set of wrappings around his neck. That's because the mummy of Ramesses III has extra wrappings around its neck. That's where the image in the movies came from. And we now know why Ramesses' mummy has those extra wrappings. In 2012, and that shows you how recent some of these new discoveries are, a group of Egyptologists led by Zahi Hawass, who we'll mention in future episodes, released a paper called Revisiting the Harem Conspiracy and Death of Ramesses III. The authors of the paper did CAT scans of the mummy, and they determined that Ramesses' throat had been cut with a deep and wide wound in it. Previous Egyptologists had thought that this was something that may have happened during the embalming process like the embalmers accidentally caused this wound while they were mummifying him. But the new findings suggested it wasn't during the uh, it wasn't during the embalming process. The throat wound was what killed him. And it thus appears that during the initial attack Ramesses suffered a fatal throat wound, and that means he did not survive to issue any instructions about how the judicial inquiry You know, should be conducted after the coup failed. I mean, you can imagine he's got this fatal throat cut and he's trying to choke out instructions for this thing. You know, that's not happening. All the language, therefore, from the judicial pyrus seems to have been written afterward and was meant to help him get into the afterlife. It also means that it looks like the coup plotters were successful in one of their goals, killing the current pharaoh. So, what happened to the conspirators afterward? Once the group had been defeated and stability restored, a series of judicial inquiries began. From the surviving documents, we know about four of these, though there's, there almost certainly were others, like what happened with Tia and the women of the harem. That was a, would have been a separate investigation because you've got to find out exactly which concubines knew about this. The first prosecution dealt with the principal officials within the palace who were involved. Chief among them, in first place, was Pebe Kamen he and all of the other officials in this group were executed. These individuals are described as having the results of their own crimes seize them. So it's like their own crimes are seizing them. That magically exonerates Ramesses and the judges of their deaths. Uh, This prosecution was overseen by six officials, and for reasons we'll cover later, we should note three of them. There were three of the six officials included a guy named Hori, who was a standard bearer of the army, a guy named Pebes, who was a butler, and a guy named Mai, who was a scribe of the archives. The second prosecution dealt with those who had been recruited to overcome Ramesses' physical and magical defenses. That's the commander of the army and the guys with magic powers. Unlike those in the first prosecution, they were allowed or basically forced to commit suicide. Since these guys were magical and thus in good with the gods, the fact they were allowed to kill themselves was likely an attempt to protect Ramesses and the judges from the consequences of killing them, something the gods otherwise might be annoyed about. But if they kill themselves, you know, it's like the gods aren't going to blame us, maybe, hopefully. This prosecution was also presided over by six judges including the aforementioned Hori, Pebez and Mai. That leads to the third prosecution which dealt with the apparently most intimate plotters of the coup. This prosecution included Pintaware, the son of Tia. It also included other officials who heard the women of the harem discussing the plans. Everybody involved was executed. But again, it was stressed that their crimes seized them, meaning they were the responsible parties for their deaths. This prosecution was overseen by five judges, none of whom had been involved in the previous ones, putting it in a special category.
0: You'd said there was a bonus question we haven't talked about yet, which has to do with a surprising twist in the story. What's that? At this
1: point, Ramesses IV was well along the way to bringing the conspirators who killed his father to justice. But now something really unexpected and really embarrassing takes place. It is an attempt to subvert justice, and it leads to a fourth prosecution that we have in the records. You'll recall that in two of the previous trials, there were these three of the six judges I mentioned, Hori standard bearer for the army, Pebes, who was a butler, and Mai, who was a scribe of the archives. Well, it turns out that all three were approached by men who had the female conspirators in their custody. One of them was a man named Tenachte, who was chief of the infantry, and the other one was Onene, captain of the police. After the coup had been enacted and they had all been caught, These two men, the chief of the infantry and the captain of the police, brought the female conspirators out of jail and to the residence of the three judges. And the women then had a party with the judges and tried to corrupt them to sway the judgments in their favor. Various translations will say they caroused with them. Literally what the scroll says is they made a beer hall with them. So apparently there was a lot of drinking. And I'm sure they were planning on carousing in other ways too and using their feminine wiles on the judges. So 3 of the judges charged with prosecuting the members of the conspiracy were themselves corrupted by members of the conspiracy. I mean how embarrassing for the officials of the new king Ramesses IV. But one of the judges who was there apparently proved faithful. It was the man named Hori. And we know that because he's the only person to appear in the court records who isn't punished. Apparently, after the drinking party, he in some way reported what happened. I mean, maybe someone else reported it and he was willing to confirm it to save his neck, but, and maybe he turned state's evidence on the other guys. But, we can deduce that he did report it in some way because there was this fourth prosecution where everyone involved in the incident was hauled before another panel of judges. You know, corrupting the judicial process was considered a less serious crime than murdering the pharaoh. So they weren't executed or forced to commit suicide. So they got off easier than that, but it wouldn't be considered easy by modern standards they also were not put in prison because lengthy detentions in prison were not normal in the ancient world i mean it didn't make sense to the ancients that when resources are scarce you put someone indefinitely in a building where you have to guard them and feed them you know you wanted to punish them and get it over with and so in this case the men who attended the beer hall party both the judges and the officials who brought in the women had their noses and ears cut off Oof. to humiliate them. It was a mark of shame that would let the person live and would forever warn other people against him and so forth. Apparently, the humiliation was enough that one of the judges, Pebes, the former butler, even after he had his nose and ears cut off, he went ahead and killed himself anyway when he was left alone. He just didn't want to live with this. But then there's that one man, the Judge Horry, who reported the incident, and he was let off with a severe reprimand. Uh, The reprimand was presumably for attending the drinking party and not reporting it immediately. But as a reward for reporting it in the end, he was the only one who wasn't otherwise punished.
0: What about the others, the ones who were executed or committed suicide? How specifically did they die? The Egyptians had a bunch of different ways of executing people. But in this period,
1: there was a standard mode of execution for people who had committed rebellion. Rebellion is considered one of the most serious crimes in any society, but it was especially bad in Egypt because they lived in a precarious environment that required everyone to work together all the time to maintain ma'at or divine order. Trying to kill Pharaoh, the man on whom the ma'at or divine order of society crucially depended, was thus especially horrible, and the punishment for it was burning alive. Pharaoh Akhenaten, who we talked about in episode 28 on Egypt's heretic pharaoh, he was, you know, a monotheist, remember? He threatened rebels with being burned alive, so he wasn't the hippie pacifist he's often portrayed as. Concerning this
0: type of execution, Susan Redmond writes, A large flaming cauldron was used, a veritable fiery furnace. Braziers used for burnt offerings of sacrificial animals have been recovered from temple sites But what in particular found in Edfu is decorated with reliefs of bound nude men and priests brandishing knives and torches. Moreover, a religious book of the late period refers to human sacrificial victims as cattle people, which one scholar interprets as people who revolted and as a result were sacrificed like cattle on the brazier of the local temple. When it comes to the conspirators who committed suicide,
1: we're not entirely sure what means was used, but it's been suggested that in one case it may have been by poison. In the 1800s, Egyptologists discovered a huge cache of royal mummies at a place called Deir el Bahri. Uh, Back in antiquity, they had been pulled out of their original tombs and put together in this new location to protect them from tomb robbers. And it worked. The Deir el-Bahri cache remained basically undisturbed until the 1800s. Then, as Egyptologist Bob Breyer explains in an article called The Mystery of Unknown Man
0: E, On a day at the end of June 1886, Gaston Maspero, head of the Egyptian Antiquities Service, was unwrapping the mummies of kings and queens found in a cache at Deir el-Bahri, near the Valley of the Kings, Inside a plain, undecorated coffin that offered no clues to the deceased's identity, Maspero found something that shocked him. There, wrapped in a sheepskin, a ritually unclean object for ancient Egyptians, was a young man, hands and feet bound, who seemed to be screaming. There was no incision on the left abdomen, through which the embalmers normally remove the internal organs. The man had not been afforded the traditional mummification. Maspero was convinced there had been foul play as he wrote in Le Momie Royale de Beydere El Bahri all those who saw him firsthand thought that he looked as though he had been poisoned the contraction of the abdomen and stomach the desperate movement with which the head is thrown back the expression of excruciating pain spread over the face hardly allow for any other explanation Daniel Fouquet the physician who examined the mummy at the time agreed that he had been poisoned and said the last convulsions of horrid agony can after thousands of years still be seen End quote. "a chemist named Matthew, who did some analyses on the mummy felt that quote, "the wretched man must have been deliberately asphyxiated most likely by being buried alive" End quote.
1: this mummy came to be known as unknown man e and there are there were two theories about how he died first that he was poisoned and second that he was asphyxiated Actually, as later investigators pointed out, you can't really deduce a cause of death by the position a corpse is in. I mean, the the guys who buried him could have always, oh, let's, you know, he's we're punishing this guy, humiliating him now that he's dead. Let's make him look like he's screaming and tie his hands and feet up. But since there was there were no clearly visible wounds on unknown Manny, I mean, there's no stab wound, there's no, his, he hasn't been burned alive. Both poison and asphyxiation were, you know, options that remained open. Now, notice that Unknown Man E was buried in a cache of royal mummies, suggesting he is a royal person. But he's also buried without the usual embalming, in a ritually unclean sheepskin, and with his hand and feet bound, suggesting he was being punished. It didn't take long for Egyptologists to speculate that unknown man E was Pentawere. But there were rival theories. For example, maybe he was the Hittite prince that was sent to marry Tutankhamun's widow, like we talked about in episode 42. Remember that guy, Uh, the prince that the Hittite king sends to marry the widow to become the new pharaoh, but I and Horemheb had him murdered at the border to keep him from becoming pharaoh so that I could become pharaoh instead? Well, in 2012, a study of both Ramesses III's mummy, this was the Zahi Hawass study, and Unknown Man E was done, and the team had two significant findings about Unknown Man E. First, he has the same Y chromosome as Ramesses III, and... 50% 50% of the same DNA, strongly suggesting that they are father and son. So since we know who Pentawera is, uh, since we know who Ramesses' mummy is, and we know his father didn't die in this humiliated way, but we know Pentawera did, this is very likely Pentawera. I mean, I think this one's basically solved. We know at this point, unknown man, he is Pentawera. Second, Uh, The mummy had an inflated thorax and compressed skin folds around his neck, suggesting that he died by strangulation or hanging. However, the team members said that they couldn't fully determine the cause of death. So, you know, maybe Pentawera committed suicide by poison, or maybe he had a servant strangle him, or maybe he hanged himself, or maybe it was both if the poison didn't act fast enough. Or maybe he was actually killed on the orders of the judges, but they didn't want to admit that, and so they, you know, stated otherwise. In any event, he was he died and was buried in a ritually impure way, but still with the royal family. Concerning the others who were executed or committed
0: suicide, Susan Redmond writes, After the flaming brazier had cooled, whatever bodily remains were left were scattered over the dirt roads for donkeys to tread on. The tombs the condemned individuals had prepared for themselves in life were desecrated, their coffins and grave goods seized, and the door lintel bearing their name dismantled by orders of the crown. The families of those who committed suicide may have been allowed to remove their bodies for burial under authorized supervision. The burial allotted those condemned for all eternity would have been one anathema to all Egyptians the body would not be embalmed. It would not be placed in a wooden coffin decorated with protective spells, but wrapped in a reed mat or animal skin. There would be no grave goods for them to take with them to the next world. And so, the black
1: magic harem conspiracy ended. Uh, Ramesses III had been murdered, but his designated successor, Ramesses IV, had taken the throne. The king was dead. Long live the king. So, Jimmy, what's your bottom line on this mystery? Even though Ramses III was trying to restore Egypt to the greatness it had under Ramses II, something was seriously wrong in his reign. There is no way that that many of a king's closest associates would risk their own lives in a plot to kill him unless there were serious problems. There was probably a mix of motives, including some that were purely selfish, but others that were concerned for the common good. Whether the problems were severe enough to warrant overthrowing Ramesses III is something that, at this distance in time, I can't possibly judge. It's clear that the conspirators achieved one of their goals, killing Ramesses Third, but they failed in their other goal, getting Pentawera on the throne instead of Ramesses IV. While we know what they did in broad outlines, a lot of the details about what they were planning and what actually happened and then what happened to them afterwards remain mysterious.
0: So, Jimmy, what further resources can we offer to listeners on this? We'll have a link to where you can get Susan
1: Redford's book, uh, The Harem Conspiracy. Also, Pascal Vernus's book, Affairs and Scandals in Ancient Egypt, which has section, a chapter on the Black Magic Conspiracy, but also a lot of other ancient Egyptian juicy scandals and affairs. Bob Breyer's excellent, excellent course from the teaching company, The History of Ancient Egypt. It's a wonderful audio or video course, depending on how you want to experience it. We'll also have records, of uh, a link to records of the harem conspiracy, so you can read the original documents. Bob Breyer's article, The Mystery of Unknown Man E, Zahi Hawass' paper, Revisiting the Harem Conspiracy and the Death of Ramesses III. We'll also have a summary of that paper a link to Ramesses' tomb, you know, the tomb of the Harpers, and also episode 42 on Was King Tut
0: Murdered? So you can go back and hear about that other prince, the Hittite. Excellent. All right. So that's that mystery. And let's uh, move on to talk about some of the mysterious feedback we've received from listeners on our episode on another ancient ruler who was murdered, uh, Caligula. Uh, Bennett Gillespie writes on Facebook, uh, enjoyed the podcast as always. When you were mentioning John Hurt, I was waiting for a comment about a young Patrick Stewart with Hair in I Claudius. Yes, uh so Patrick
1: Stewart uh, back in the 70s was in I Claudius. He played the would-be emperor wannabe Sejanus, Aelius Sejanus, who was for a time Claudius's father-law, father-in-law and also an assistant to the emperor Tiberius who and Sejanus then instituted a reign of terror a reign of terror in Rome while Tiberius was off amusing himself immorally on the island of Capri. And yes, Patrick Stewart has hair. <laughs> when my when my wife first showed me, I mean, I'd seen bits of I, Claudius when I was a kid because it was a big rage among my mom's friends and a lot of other people at the time. But then when I saw it as an adult, my wife had already
0: seen it first. And she
1: said, well, wait till you see who's coming up next.
0: <laughs> Patrick Stewart with hair. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and you can find images of that on, uh, on Google. I've seen them. Allie Kidd writes on Facebook, this was excellent, and thanks to both of you, as it was not at all graphic. Yeah, thank you, Ali. I know that, you know, some listeners have more
1: delicate sensibilities than others. We could have, I mean, some of the stuff that Caligula got up to, especially with his sisters like Drusilla, are really horrific. But for, you know, folks, more delicate sensibilities, and especially for children, because one of the things I've been very pleased about, but also want to be very Respectful of is all of the parents in the audience who have children listening because it was quite surprising when we started to get messages from parents telling
0: us how much their children enjoy the program. So we try to be very mindful of that. Uh, Rick Angelini writes on Facebook I'll definitely be looking at some of the follow up reading material. This was a fascinating time in history. I'm fortunate that I've been to Rome multiple times and I can visualize things like the Forum, the Colosseum, and Palatine Hill. So these stories come alive in my imagination. I know. I have the same thing. I was when I first went
1: to Rome, it's like, oh, my hotel is on the Palatine Hill. And and then I was on the Capitoline Hill and I was sitting down just because I was tired of walking. I was sitting down taking a break under this cliff face. And it's like, I look it up and that's the Tarpeian rock. <laughs> and, you know, because if you like read the the ancient Roman law codes, one of their Forms of capital punishment was if you commit certain crimes, you were to be hurled from the Tarpeian rock. And I love how they have a specific place, you know, for that <laughs> right. named in their law codes. So if I ever like write a science fiction story about some alien race and its law codes, they're going to have an equivalent like, if you commit this crime, you are to be hurled from the mountain of madness or whatever. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Uh, Drew Montreuil on Facebook writes, another great episode, as has been often said by others. I came into this with no overtly great interest in the topic and come out enthralled, wanting to read Suetonius's Lives of the Twelve Caesars.
1: Yeah, and the Twelve Caesars is a great read. Unfortunately, the first bit of the life of Julius Caesar is lost, but then it picks right up with his career and talks about it. And it's a great read. I've read it many times. It is is, Suetonius has a reputation for being dwelling
0: a little bit much on the gossip. But, you know, that's part of what makes it fun. (laughs) Right. Uh, Adam Hovey comments on YouTube. I love history. So anything you can do on Romans, Greeks, the ancient Middle East, the ancient Americas or the ancient Far East, I'm going to be interested in. I'm looking forward to listening to this. Well, thank you so much. We had, uh, you
1: know, this episode right here on uh, Another Historical Thing, and it's definitely part of the regular mix of what I try to do, you know, hopping around between scientific mysteries and religious mysteries and UFOs and history and all that stuff.
0: Excellent. So thank you,
1: everyone, for that feedback. Uh, Jimmy, do we have some mysterious headlines this week? Yeah. And since we're talking about ancient Egypt in this episode, I thought I'd give our headlines in Egypt thing theme. There is new evidence concerning what may be Queen Nefertiti's tomb. Nefertiti was the mother of King Tut, and for years there have been conflicting claims about what like ground-penetrating radar does or does not show at King Tut's tomb. You have some studies that look like there's a hidden chamber there, which is speculated to maybe be his mom's tomb. You have other studies that people said, no, it doesn't look like that, but now there's another new study saying, yeah, it looks like there is a hidden chamber there. And so there's new new evidence and this new speculation about, is this Nefertiti's tomb? Also, everybody loves baby cats. I mean, that's why the internet is full of pictures with them. <laughs> well, there are now baby lion cub mummies that have been discovered in Egypt. And, you know, Egyptians sometimes said to have regarded cats as sacred animals. They didn't worship them as gods. There's only one or maybe a few other animals that were actually worshipped as gods in Egypt. One of them was the Apis bull. But ordinary cats, okay, maybe it's sacred, but it's not a god. But baby lion
0: cub mummies. How cool (laughs) is that? Check them out. All right. So, well, we want to hear from you listeners for your theories about the Black Magic, harem conspiracy, and the murder of Ramses III. So you can let us know by going to Uh, sqpn.com or the Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World Facebook page. You can send an email to mysterious at sqpn.com or send a tweet to at mys underscore world with the hashtag of mysterious feedback. So, Jimmy, what's our next episode going to be about? Next week, we're going to have a cryptological paranormal mystery. We're going to be talking about werewolves. Ooh, So uh, maybe that'll come out during the full moon. Jimmy, did you time it right? I haven't (laughs) checked on that. (laughs) So, uh, folks, when you uh, go online to our website, be sure to check out the Mysterious World Bookstore at MysteriousWorldStore.com for links to all the books and videos that Jimmy mentions in the show, both this one and all our previous episodes. Uh, you can find links to Jimmy's resources from our discussion and links to the mysterious headlines on our show notes at sqpn.com slash mysterious. And remember, you can help us continue to produce the podcast by visiting sqpn.com slash give and becoming a patron. Until next time, Jimmy Akin, thank you for exploring with us our mysterious world. Thanks, Dom. And once again, I'm Dom Bettinelli. Thank you for listening to Jimmy Aiken's Mysterious World on StarQuest.